Good morning. Happy Easter. It's good to see you. Um, I, I didn't grow up going to church, um, so I didn't really do the whole Easter and Christmas thing uh, with a community of people like this. But I've been told that back in the day, or in more traditional churches, the way um, this would go now is the pastor, the priest, the guy up front would say to the church, He is risen. And the congregation would respond and say, he is risen indeed. So I thought maybe we could get like traditional, do what a church is meant to do, and do this for a second. I know some of you, this will be a little bit new, but he is risen. That's very good. There's some passion coming from this side, which I really, really like. I know some of you are new and you're visiting us and you're like, oh man, you're nudging your friend. You're like, you are part of a cult. I told you that this was a weird thing. That guy up front is nuts. Uh, You should not be coming here. But really this, um, this saying comes from the scriptures. It comes from Luke chapter 24. There's this uh, passage uh, or verse in uh, verse 34 that says, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And we're going to be speaking about that passage a little bit more today. But I'm not really sure how that scripture translated over centuries to become something that in the Western church is spoken every Easter like we've just done today. But one of the Eastern Orthodox Church traditions is that Mary Magdalene went up in front of the Emperor Tiberius of Rome, and she stood in front of him and declared, Christ is risen. And I thought, what a bold and incredible thing that is. I mean, imagine going into your boss's office this coming week, and you walk in and you slam the door behind you, and you look at him and you say, Christ is risen. Or even just after this, you go to spa or pick and pay or wherever you do your shopping and you walk in and you're going down the aisles kind of greeting people like, how's it going? Christ is risen. He is risen. He's risen indeed. High-fiving people with these like Easter high-fives as you go. It would be quite a bold thing, you know. But the reality is, is these words are words of hope. They're words of faith and they're words of celebration that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. The other thing I wanted to teach you today is quite interestingly in the early days of the church there was a lot of persecution in the Roman Empire against the early followers of Jesus in communities like this. And the way the church would greet one another is they would say Maranatha. It's this uh, Aramaic phrase which means the Lord is coming or come O Lord. And you can imagine that being like uh, words of hope or words of encouragement to people that were discouraged or down or stressed out or anxious about what was going on in their lives as they saw their brothers or sisters in Christ And they said, Maranatha, it was this reminder that this isn't all there is. It was this reminder to lift our heads up from the problems we face and the things that we're in and what we're going through and to be reminded of the fact that Jesus is king and that he is coming back. It's quite an amazing thing. Maybe we can try and get into that as a church. I think I tried it once before and it didn't happen. But imagine like you greet each other afterwards. Maybe we can turn it into a joke today at least. After the service, you grab a coffee, you get an Easter egg. We go, Maranatha, Grant, Maranatha, how's it going? Just don't forget, the stone has been rolled away. He died on the cross. He's risen from the grave and he is coming back. Everything the way we know it now. Actually, there's a hope that the king of the universe, he rules and reigns over everything, and actually he's going to make everything new. So the problems you face, the momentary problems and struggles, and for some of you, I know they're really big, will fade away into perfection one day when he returns. That's some pretty good news. And I wanted to share that with you because words are powerful. And because words create worlds, the words that we speak and the words that we believe and the words that we internalize shape the way we see the world around us and shape how we see ourselves. So we want to understand these words. Words like he is risen are words of incredible faith and incredible hope at what God is at work doing in the world and doing in our lives. They're these words of faith that actually it is all true, that Jesus' death on the cross wasn't the end, that he was resurrected, 
that he got up, that the stone was rolled away, that he is the savior of the world, that he is the promised Messiah, that everything he said is true, that he is the king of the universe, that he does rule and reign over our lives and situations and problems, and that he is coming back. He is risen is this declaration of truth and hope and life and light and faith that the world around us is changing, that actually our sins have been forgiven, that actually the salvation that we put our hope in is true, that actually Jesus is everything that he said he is, and that around us there's this new light that is dawning of this new kingdom that is coming, where Jesus is the center and Jesus is the king. Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday or the day that we celebrate today is a day of hope. It's a day of good news. It's a day of celebration for the people of God because we've got lots to look forward to. So last week as a church, we celebrated, or maybe I should say we remembered, the fact that Jesus was crucified, that he was nailed to a cross, and that he died for the sins of the world. And I want you to think about that for a second, because today we're going to talk about his disciples and his followers. And we've got this huge benefit as followers of Jesus 2,000 years on, that we know after the crucifixion that he rose again on the third day. We know that everything that he said is true. And we've seen over the last 2,000 years how the message of Jesus and the movement of Jesus has just exploded around the world, literally going in all four directions to the four corners of the globe, that more and more people from every people group around the world have started to follow Jesus. But imagine his disciples. Imagine that Friday night after they watched Jesus crucified. Or imagine after they heard the news from their friends of what was done. And we got into some graphic detail together last week in this room. And we spoke about the scourging Jesus went through before the cross. That cat of nine tails that whipped his back 39 times with those little hooks going into his shoulders, his back, his sides, his legs, his buttocks. Ripping through skin and tendons and flesh and ripping him open so that blood poured out of his back. We spoke about that crown of thorns that went into his head. Just imagine those nails going into his skull, the blood pouring out. Spoke about his beard being ripped out of his face. Spoke about him being nailed to a cross and then dropped into that hole where he would have hung down struggling to keep breath going. Spoke about all of those very, very serious things. You can imagine the disciples who watched that being sick to their stomachs, you know. This isn't just an objective event that's happening. They love Jesus. They care about this man and they're watching him suffer in an incredibly difficult and painful way. Imagine how numb they must have felt and the the shock they would have gone through. They would have probably been shell-shocked like the color draining from their face, um, nausea setting in, just unable to eat, feeling sick, feeling shocked, not believing this, just in an absolute state of bewilderment over all of this. And you can imagine the next day, Saturday, them waking up, feeling fine, and then almost like this uh, Easter Friday hangover of it's true, like he really is dead. He really did die. The news is true. Jesus was killed. And you can imagine this being so personal for them because Jesus was their leader who they'd followed and who they'd put their hope in. They believed in him and they believed his words. But he's also their friend who they loved. You know, they cared deeply about this man. And they've watched him just absolutely be destroyed and demolished on the cross. You can imagine they would have maybe felt a bit embarrassed. Like, we've put our hope in this man. Like, we've believed everything he said And now we were wrong. Like, he's dead, he's gone, this whole thing's over. Like, we had three years with him, they were really good times, but that's game over. Yes, we better go back to normal life and carry on with fishing or whatever we were doing before, because we were tricked. The story's not real at all. You can imagine them feeling a bit foolish and embarrassed and melancholic and depressed and discouraged and down, and just the hope completely beaten out of them. We think about that, and as a church, I know if you're new here, you wouldn't know this, but we've been going through the book of Acts which is the story of the early church, the 30 years of what happened after the cross and after the resurrection. 
And you can imagine these followers of Jesus, after seeing the cross, just giving up on this whole religion thing, this whole faith thing, and just going back to life as normal. But something changed for these men and women. Something changed after the cross that actually they were filled with courage and boldness to carry on the work that they had been doing and to preach about this Jesus and not only to preach about him, but to lay down their lives and die for him and the message that they had put their hope in. They were willing to travel and sacrifice and suffer and go through huge hardship because they believed Jesus was who he said he was even after he died. And I want to ask you today, why do you think that is? What changed for them? What changed this group of cowardly, embarrassed, fearful men into these bold witnesses of the message of Jesus, willing to sacrifice and suffer and go anywhere and do anything for the sake of his name? About 30 years after the crucifixion, Peter, one of these disciples, writes and speaks about this. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And for Peter and for all of the other disciples and for us here today, the resurrection changes everything. Our entire faith, everything that we believe and hold to, hangs on whether the resurrection is true or not. That's what I'm going to talk about a little bit today, is what does the resurrection mean for us? How is the resurrection good news for us? And not just good news on Easter Sunday, but good news tomorrow and the day after and every other day. How is the resurrection important for us? So if you do have a Bible with you, you can turn to Luke 24. Otherwise, you don't have to worry. I'll be reading through uh, quite a lot of it today. But what we're going to look at is not just what Jesus has done 2,000 years ago, but what he's continuing to do today and ongoingly. So Luke 24, we'll start in verse 1. It says, but on the first day of the week. Now we read that and we think Monday, you know, oh, Mondays, you know, classic Garfield kind of comment. Like uh, we're going into Monday tomorrow, luckily it's a day off, but normally Monday is a real day of dread. But they're actually talking about Sunday there. You see, something happened in Jesus' death and resurrection that Sunday became the day that the church would gather together to worship and pray and study and learn and grow and fellowship and be together. Sunday, the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, became the day where the people of God got together to celebrate. And I want to say the gathering of the people of God is a really, really important thing for all of us. So on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, and they were perplexed about this. Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Now listen, Luke isn't just a commentator on their fashion sense or anything like this. These are angels, if you didn't get the point. These are glowing with the glory of the Lord. But I do also just want to highlight here that these angels don't have wings. They look like men. These are normal-looking men who are just glowing with the glory of God. So they see these angels, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead. He is not here, but is risen. How cool is that? For those ladies, that must have been this moment of excitement. Like, could it be true? Could he still be alive? Do you think that's really, really possible? So they get excited about this. But the next line in this is the most crazy part of this whole passage to me. I think it's an insane passage, and I'll show you why. The angels say to them, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men 
and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. They remembered Jesus telling them this. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, to the apostles, and to all the rest. Now, I read that this week, and I thought, this is insane. Like, Jesus told them he was going to be crucified and rise from the dead on the third day. And they just didn't take it in. Like, if I said something like that today, I hope that that would stand out to you, you know? Like, out of everything I said, I feel like that would be the most important thing. But somehow this has just like drifted past the apostles and the disciples and the followers of Jesus. They haven't taken this in at all. So when it happens, they're completely caught off guard. And I want you to think, like for you, if you heard someone say that, how would you respond? Like even if it was a really hot day and Jesus was preaching a really long sermon and it was dragging on and you're like, Jesus, we've heard this all before. Like these are your greatest hits. Like Okay, okay, we've got it. Can we go home? Like, we're really tired now. You can imagine Jesus, if he's preaching, just think this is you. And he says something like, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And by the way, um, I will be crucified, and on the third day I will rise from the dead. And blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. You would say, pause, reverse, like go back to the thing in between. Because that was out of the ordinary, you know. You just told us that you were going to die on a cross and be like resurrected. You were going to raise from the dead. Like that's a big claim. And like for any one of us, we should stop there and say, okay, like this guy's nuts. I'm out. Like this is crazy. Or this man is a prophet. He is foretelling what's going to happen. This must be true. And I'm going to follow him. This would have been a huge fork in the road for most people where they said, either I am all in on this Jesus thing, this is incredible, he is the Messiah, or this guy is nuts, I'm out. I don't really understand how for the disciples this just breezes past them and they forget this claim until the angels remind them. But they do. I think for most people that would have blown them away. This is foundational for the Christian faith. You cannot actually be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection. Everything hangs on this. And Luke actually teaches us in his story of Jesus' life that Jesus told them this at least three times. So it's not just like once it blew past and they carried on. No, in Luke 9 verse 22, 9 verse 44, and 18 verse 32 to 33, Jesus tells them this. So twice in one chapter, and I looked it up, it's two days in a row. So one day you're traveling with Jesus and he mentions, I'm going to be crucified and rise from the dead on the third day. And then the next day, because no one's asked him any questions about it, he's like, just going to put that out there again, see if anyone picks up on this. It's kind of a big part of my message. And he says it, and again, no one asks him about it. So he goes, I'm in the clear. Obviously, they've got this stuff, like, let's keep going. And then in Luke 18, again, he brings it up at least three times he shares this. And they don't think to take this in at all. But they do remember it, because when an angel brings it up, they go, oh yes, we remember him saying that in Galilee when we were there. He did tell us. And they go back to the 11 apostles to tell them about what they've seen and experienced and heard. And in verse 10 and 11, it says, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women um, with them who told these things to the apostles. See, these ladies were the ones who had been in the tomb. The men obviously were busy with something else. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So I just want you to get this for a second. Jesus has told the group of disciples this at least three times. And then they've seen Jesus die. He was crucified like he told them he would be. And they haven't kind of taken note of this correlation. And now these women have been at the tomb and have seen the angel, and they come back and they say, hey guys, just so you know, Jesus told us this was going to happen. The angels have reminded me. And the apostles are still sitting there going, we think that's talking nonsense. 
These are idle tales. You know, we don't really buy into this whole thing that's going on. And I want to say this because basically if you're looking into becoming a Christian today, the church has got a really long history of being a bit doof. We even see it here in the Bible. Like over a long period of time, this message is being repeated again and again and again. And the Christians don't seem to be getting it. You know, the apostles, the guys who are going to take this message to the ends of the world and strengthen the church, they don't get what Jesus is doing, let alone the rest of the people. And I want to say that because luckily God is very, very patient and gracious with us. He's so kind, (laughs) repeating these things over and over again, giving us time to catch up with where he is and helping us to understand what's going on. God is really, really patient with each and every one of us. But verse 12 has got a bit of good news. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Thank goodness one of the 11 remaining apostles seems to be getting it. He runs to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Seems like Peter's starting to believe that this resurrection stuff is true. Verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles or 11 and a half kilometers from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, I think one of the things we can just gloss over here is the seven miles thing, the 11 kilometers thing. So we read this and we think, well, this is less than 40 hours after Jesus was crucified. And I know I'm kind of laboring this last week and this week, but Jesus was scorched. The, the 39 lashes with the cat of nine tails, this, this whip made by an executioner, which had pieces of metal on the end to tenderize the skin and metal and bone hooks that would lash into his skin, ripping open skin and muscle and tendons, exposing bone and just making him bleed out. He had the crown of thorns pushed into his head. He had his beard pulled out. He was nailed to the cross. He was dumped in the hole where he would have jolted as he dropped down. And then trained executioners. I I think we can hear this and we think, well, this is 2,000 years ago. They were a little bit backward. They didn't really know what they were doing. But they had had hundred years, hundreds of years, about 500 years to perfect crucifixion. So when Jesus is crucified, there are these trained executioners who know what to do to bring out the most pain in someone who are killing Jesus so that he will suffer. And they look at him and they say, this man is dead. They look at him on the cross, they say, he's dead. But you know what we would normally do? We'd normally break his legs so that if he's not, he would hang down and he would suffocate because he couldn't like hold himself up to breathe. But instead of doing that, what we're going to do is take a spear and stick it through his side, up his body, through his lungs, to puncture his lungs so that he won't be able to breathe and he will die. As they pull out the spear, water pours out of Jesus' lungs, proving that he is dead. I want to say that because the crowd thought he was dead. The trained experts in execution thought Jesus was dead. And then 40 hours later, Jesus is walking 11 kilometers with these two people. If you're here and you believe for a second that the resurrection could be a hoax, I just can't believe it. A trained professional executioner said, this man is dead. And then just a few hours later, he's walking along with no one really noticing how injured he is. Now, I am I'm not the fittest person in the world. I know you couldn't tell. But um, I have been boxing over the last while. And the first time I went to boxing, my body was absolutely destroyed, like... Um, I think I hadn't done squats in a very long time. 
and skipping and all of the other exercises we did. And the next day after my first boxing training, I remember like limping around with moans and groans that made Shell feel like very weird because it was just, this sounded inappropriate. So I'm moaning and groaning while I walk and then I'm trying to sit down and I have to like drop into the chair or onto the toilet, which is a bit of an overshare. And walking upstairs would be like this really painful thing as I hold the bar. And that's from like an hour to an hour and a half of exercise. So I don't know if that tells you more about me or about the scene, but I'm just trying to say Jesus has been tortured by people for hours and has been left for dead. Everyone's convinced he's dead. And now he's just doing a quick 11K with these people, just walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus without them saying, sheesh, you look like you're struggling. It's not like Jesus is like ah, hobbling along because of the pain of all of the injuries he's gone through. And it's not like they're looking at all of the blood caked on his skin or the holes in his body and saying, Jesus, something happened to you. Like you look dreadful. They are fine. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus was crucified, he was unrecognizable. Isaiah 52 verse 14, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. Jesus was beaten in his crucifixion so that he did not look human anymore. He was like a bloody piece of meat, a pulp hanging on this cross. You wouldn't have said, oh, there's a man. You would have said, there's like a bloody blob on the cross. And then less than 40 hours later, he's walking along with these guys without them asking any questions because he just seems like a normal man. To me, if you think that the whole crucifixion thing is a hoax, I think you have to believe in something pretty supernatural to think that Jesus was able to get up and do that walk. Jesus rose from the dead. He was killed. He was crucified. He suffered. And he was supernaturally risen by the power of God to live again. Luke 24, verse 17. And Jesus said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad because they've just experienced Jesus' death. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? Now, I... I really like Jesus more after reading this passage, you know. You're going to see him pull a few pranks on his, well, I don't know if you can call them pranks, holy sanctified pranks or tricks. And he um, he seems to, after being resurrected, have like a real spring in his step. And in this moment, it's like he knows they're disappointed, he knows they're discouraged, he knows they're down, but he's about to surprise them with the truth that he's risen from the dead. So it's like it's a bit of a scamp. And in this moment, as they ask him what things... Oh, sorry, as he asked them, what thing? What's happened in Jerusalem? What is it that I don't know about? It's almost like he's playing with them a little bit. It's like he, it's like if it was a movie, he turns to the camera and he breaks the fourth wall and he smiles and says, what things? Almost like to play with the audience because we're about to watch something incredible unfold. And they start to share about what's happened. They share about the crucifixion and his death. They share about the woman going to the tomb and seeing these angels and what they're not sure about. Like, is this true? Has he risen from the dead? We're so confused about all of this. And Jesus looks at them and he tells them off. Jesus rebukes them. He corrects them. And he says, you don't know the scriptures properly, which just seems like a little bit out of turn. But I do want to say to Harbor City Church today, guys, if these disciples of Jesus didn't know the scriptures well enough, These guys who've traveled with Jesus for years and heard so much of his teaching and asked him questions. How much less do we know the scriptures? And if in this situation they are stumped because they don't know the Bible well enough, how much better do we need to get to know the Bible for the struggles and things that we face in life? 
This is a book that God can speak to us supernaturally from. And I really want to encourage us to get it in us more and more and more. So Jesus tells them off because they don't know the scriptures properly. And um, basically what he does is he starts off in Genesis and he starts working his way all the way through the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, just going all the way through, pointing out Jesus, pointing out these passages in the scripture written thousands of years before that were speaking about him and speaking about his life and speaking about his death, talking about the suffering he would have to go through in Jerusalem. And they're like listening to all of this, having these aha moments as he goes along. This must have been a really long walk, you know, but a really, really good Bible study. And as Jesus is going through all of this, it's just like their minds are being blown by the truth that they've never seen before in the scriptures, that it's all about him. It's all pointing ahead to him and what he would do for them. And after this long walk, they get into Emmaus, and the disciples are going to go and get into their house. And they think, come and join us for dinner. And Jesus, again, scamp, playful prank, is like, "Ah, I'm just going to keep going. They're like, no, no, come and please have a meal with us after all you've shared. And he says, okay, I'll join you for dinner. And he goes inside, and they sit down at the table, and Jesus takes the loaf of bread that's on the table, and he breaks it. He's about to hand it to them, and Luke writes, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Because they've literally just spent the last few hours walking all the way from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They've sat down for dinner. They're probably pretty hungry. They're about to eat. They realize it's Jesus. He disappears and they're like, we've got to go back. And they go another 11 kilometers back to Jerusalem to get together with the church to tell them that Jesus is alive, that he has risen. It's quite an evening. You know, there's a lot going on here. And they found the 11 and those who are with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, a kind of key verse for today. Then they told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And I can just imagine all of the lady disciples in the room just rolling their eyes like, oh my gosh, guys, we told you this this morning. You're literally mansplaining the resurrection to us right now. Like, we told you this earlier, and now you guys think you've got this brand new revelation. This has been going on for ages. Verse 36 says, As they were talking about these things, Jesus stood among them. Again, prankster, he's back. And he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? It's kind of crazy. These disciples, after everything that's been going on in the last three days, after everything that's happened this day, they see Jesus literally in front of them. And they're like, ah. I still doubt it. Like, I'm a little bit scared of this. I don't know who this is. Is this really him? What's going on? They still doubt. And again, I just want to say, God has got such grace and patience with us in our process of coming to him. If you're here today and you've got doubts about Jesus or the resurrection or about the Bible or about church or anything, we would love to help you on a journey of getting answers and dealing with your doubts and processing those things. And this is a good community to be a part of where you can ask your questions and share your struggles and ask for prayer and get answers and get help because Jesus is patient with you. He's patient with me. He's patient with us. And he wants us to come to know him. Jesus says to them, See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. 
And it's like this amazing moment where Jesus is saying, you guys think that I'm a ghost, but feel me, like feel my skin. There's hair on my arms. You can feel my shoulder bones and all of this. I'm not a ghost. I'm a man. I'm resurrected. And for some of us today, we think that the resurrection one day in heaven, we will be like these ghosts floating around and flying around, but it's not true. We will have physical bodies. We will have body, soul, and spirit in heaven with God forever. You will be tangible. You will be able to be touched, just like Jesus shows us here. And that verse 41 is a little bit complicated. So I just wanted to share, the NLT translates it this way. Still they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. They're in shock. They can't believe this. They can't believe he's been raised from the dead. But they're also so excited. Like, he was right all along. You know, we, we put our money on the right horse. Jesus really is the savior of the world. But it's this cognitive dissonance of they've been devastated and now all of a sudden this joy is rising up in them. What do they feel? What do they do? Where do they go? They're so confused. And he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. What a letdown. And he took it and he ate before them. And I just love this picture of Jesus that we get here, you know. As we see him in the scriptures, he's an incredible man. He's so wise. He's so full of truth. But I love this. Firstly, supernaturally, he's been raised from the dead. Secondly, he's been playing these holy pranks on them, appearing, disappearing, asking questions. And now thirdly, he wants to eat. After the resurrection, he's hungry and he would love something tasty to eat. But I'm kind of joking about these things. But the point I want to highlight is Jesus rose from the dead. He was resurrected. And everything about our faith hangs on this truth. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is not true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I just want to say you cannot take the resurrection out of Christianity. If you take the resurrection out, you lose everything else along with it. Because think about this. Jesus said at least three times that he was going to be raised from the dead. So if he wasn't, then he lied. Either he was deceived and he was kind of a bit out of it, or he was lying to people, trying to deceive them and trick them that he was going to be raised from the dead. Jesus lied about that. He's a wicked man. He's an evil man. He's a bad man, not worthy of our worship. And he's definitely not God. You know, he's not this holy, righteous, perfect God and king. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, not only that, but it means that his death on the cross had no meaning for us. If Jesus uh, is not risen from the dead, then yes, he may have died on the cross, but he didn't die to forgive your sins. It means you and I are still in our sins. means we're not forgiven. He's not a savior, and he's not the Messiah. And more than that, it means that this gospel good news stuff that we've been talking about every week is nonsense. The church is a waste of time. And over the last 2,000 years, the 2 billion Christians alive today and the billions that have uh, kind of passed away have believed in like this crazy hoax and given their lives to the wrong thing. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, this is just all a waste of time. The whole of Christianity hangs on the resurrection. Philip Yancey says, in many respects, I find an unresurrected Jesus easier to accept. Easter makes him dangerous. Because of Easter, 
I have to listen to his extravagant claims and can no longer pick and choose from his commands. Moreover, Easter means he must be loose out there somewhere. (laughs) Kind of like the threat and the encouragement of that, you know. Easter means he's risen, he's alive. Jesus is on the loose. He's still doing the stuff that he's been doing since the beginning of time. Jesus is carrying on to do that because he is alive, because it is all true. And I want to ask you today, do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Do you believe that that is true? Because that has got huge implications for your life and mine. Paul, writing to another church in Galatia, says this in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. He's talking past tense. He's not saying I'm being crucified with Christ. He's saying 2,000 years ago when Jesus was crucified on that cross, I was crucified with him. He goes on, he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you're a Christian here today, you don't believe that one day after you die, you will be raised from the dead. You will be resurrected. You believe that actually now you are living in resurrection life already. What Paul writes and says is that 2,000 years ago, Grant Clark was nailed to a cross and died with Jesus Christ. I died then, and when he rose from the dead, I rose with him. So now I am living in the resurrection life of Jesus already. That resurrection life that raised him from the dead is at work in me. And you, if you're a follower of Jesus here too, that resurrection life is the life that we live and that we enjoy. That we've got a new life, that we've got a new identity which is found in him. The old life is washed away. Our past is washed away. And we've got a fresh start in him. You see, the cross saves us from sins. We've been forgiven. We've been saved from the wrath of God. We've been saved from the law. We've been saved from Satan and sin and death and all of those things. We've been saved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life. But the resurrection gives us a new life. Gives us a new relationship with Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Sets us free from all of those things that were holding us. Gives us eternal life. And it brings us into this new kingdom, the kingdom of God. You see, one of the things that the resurrection life that is living in us here in Durban now means that our lives here and now matter. We're not just waiting to die to go to heaven. It's like, cool, we're just biding time. Like, I don't know how much longer I've got, but then I can at least enjoy this life that Jesus has got for me now. No, the resurrection life means that here and now our lives matter and our work matters and our words matter and how we live and the decisions we make matter because we're living in this resurrection life now. And this resurrection life has started in us. What Jesus is doing, he started with you and I and the resurrection life inside of us is spilling out of us into the whole world all around us until one day God makes everything new in the way he promised to do. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It's been one of the things I've prayed for us for today, that God would open our minds to understand this. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That's Jesus fulfilled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. 
See, through the resurrection, a whole new world is dawning all around us with Jesus at the center as king. And now we get to taste of that resurrection. Your life and mine is this preview. It's this trailer of the life that is to come, of the eternity that is to come, working its way in and through our lives here and now. See, one day everything will be the way it's meant to be. Be a new heaven and a new earth. There'll be no more tears or suffering or pain or death or grief. One day there'll be no more injustice or evil or sin. One day there'll be no more racial tension or political anxiety or economic fear. One day everything will be the way it's meant to be. And John, one of Jesus' other disciples, speaking about this as if it's already happened, says in Revelation 11, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. What God is wanting to do in our world and universe is something he's already begun in us. This is his new resurrection kingdom project that he's begun inside of each of us and in this church and churches around the world. And Harbour City, I want to say for each of us today, the resurrection is good news for you and it's good news for us. It's good news for us today and it's good news for us, to, for us tomorrow because it promises us a new life and a new identity and a new freedom in Jesus and forgiveness for our sins. It promises us a new kingdom and it gives us a new hope, not just for the life to come, but for this life here and now. And this morning I want to ask you, how do you respond to Jesus' resurrection? It's in John 11, he speaks to us and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Whoever. And I want to extend that invite to you today. Whoever. It's not just for good people. It's not just for some people. It's for whoever. It's not like there's a little asterisk there and small print at the bottom of the page that says, unless you have dot, dot, dot. No, this invitation is for you, no matter your past, no matter what you've done, no matter your story, whoever you are, the resurrection and the life of Jesus are yours. Let's stand together and we'll pray. If you don't mind just closing your eyes so we can pray together and just respond to God and maybe personally just reflect on this for a minute. I don't know what God's word is to you today or how you should necessarily respond. But today, if you know that you need your sins forgiven, if you know that you need what Jesus has done on the cross to be applied to your life, can I ask you to raise your hands to God as a sign of surrender? You're saying, God, it's me. I need it. I need what you did on the cross. I need the power of what you did in the resurrection. Would you forgive me? I'm a sinner. I'm imperfect. Would you wash me clean? Would you take away my sins? Would you just bring those to Jesus even now? And Jesus, I ask you to take those sins from us. I thank you that we would know the freedom of forgiveness and the freedom that comes from bringing this over to you. And I just ask you even now, Holy Spirit, to fill us and empower us to live a new life. Empower us to live this life that you have given us. And now I ask you for the resurrection to impact us, Lord, with this new life that you've promised a foretaste of the kingdom that is to come and the world that is to come. Even now in our hearts and in our minds, would your resurrection be real? And would it be swelling and would it be growing? 
And I pray it would burst out of us into our Monday and into our Tuesday and into our Wednesday. So we come to you, Jesus, the resurrection and the life. And we ask you to so powerfully work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.